and I was one of the new students in the class, I think, and her name was Miss Matthews, and she said, Howard Levinson, stand up. I said, they stood up. She says, what are you? And I said, well, I'm part German, I'm part Russian, and part English. She says, you're a liar. You're a Jew. Sit down. Howard Levinson was seven years old when his grade school teacher sought to humiliate him. That was 92 years ago. Hurt like that never goes away. It was a painful snapshot of the anti-Semitism that Howard would experience throughout his life, growing up in poverty in Chicago, grappling with the thought that he was never good enough, yet constantly pushing himself to achieve his dream to fly. Howard was a B-24 Liberator pilot in the Pacific in World War II. He was a kid, really, a captain at age 21, when religious ignorance would bite him again. His crew feared that because Howard was Jewish, he would be a coward. Captain Levinson proved to them that he was, in fact, a hero. So if someone wanted a definition of what it's like to be dirt poor, they would see Howard Levinson, right? Yeah. I guess so. You want to bring tears to my eyes. <laughs> How poor was your family? Well, we lived on a farm that was not being farmed. It was just an empty farmhouse. No plumbing. Outhouse. Wanted to go to school in Chicago, so I lived with my grandmother. Then I rode a bicycle from a Waveland Park area where my grandmother lived to Roosevelt High School every day during the winter, so back and forth. My classmates, a lot of which had cars, all my clothes were always hand-me-downs. I never had anything new. I think once I did have some new high-top boots with a knife on the side. That was one of my pride and joys. And you had cardboard liners for your shoes? Exactly. The holes in my shoes, so I would take cardboard. to go. When I went to school, I put cardboard in the shoes so I wouldn't be walking on the street with my feet hitting the concrete. So when people think of, of lack of wealth, they may think of stories about not having any clothing. But you, your family just, you didn't. You were hand to mouth. More than more than that, we were. We I went to six grade schools. We probably moved uh, fifteen times in that period because when rent was due, we had to move. My father couldn't carry a job. He he tried a lot of different things. He was a cab driver. He was a uh, elevator helper. He could not get a a union car because he was Jewish. He uh, was uh, picked up steel or metal in the alleys with a horse and buggy. He sold fruits and vegetables. He was a landscape gardener. He was, uh, I even went with him one time when he bought peaches in Michigan and brought them back on his way back stopped at farms and traded the peaches for chickens 
and then he would take the chickens and sell the chickens for more than the peaches. He had a job at the, as a crossing guard. He would make a dollar a day, and he'd bring the dollar home, and then I would go shopping for my mother, bring back a whole shopping bag full of food for the dollar. Let me bring you back to one point that you mentioned here because it's kind of a recurring theme throughout your life. Your dad couldn't get a union card because he's Jewish. Right. What union was he trying to get into? The, the elevator the elevator. And union. he was flat out told, you're not going to be an elevator operator in the union? Not, not an operator. He couldn't work on the operators. He was a very good friend of the owner of the company. He, uh, that, I will say, I remember this... Well, I can't think of his name right now, but he ran the he ran the company, but he could not get him a job as an elevator repairman. And he's flat out told, I can't get you this job because of your faith. Correct. When you think about that today... It's sickening. It's sickening. You know, it's sickening about... When I think of anti-Semitism, or I think of anti-black, or I think of anti... Irish, or I think of anti-Catholic, or I think of anti-anything. I can't believe that there is such a thing. It's beyond me. When you were in school, you had an incident where your teacher called. I think you were seven years old? I was seven years old. And and t- tell son. me about that incident. All right, that was at um, Mrs. Matthews at either Mary Lyon or Locke School, one of the uh, six grade schools I went to. And I was one of the new students in the class, I think. And she said, Howard Levinson, stand up. And I remember this. It's only, it's only 90, uh, it's 92 years 92 ago. 92 years ago. <laughs> and I because still you're remember, 99 now. I'm 99 now. In, in June, I'll be 100. And I remember it like, just, I remember her name. Remember, she was kind of a stout, big lady. And her name was Miss Matthews. And she said, Howard Levinson, stand up. I said, I stood up. She says, what are you? And I said, well, I'm part German, I'm part Russian, and part English. That's what I knew from my grandmothers and grandparents. She says, you're a liar. You're a Jew. Sit down. And I, I did. I didn't tell my parents about it, or I didn't tell anybody about it. But I, I thought it was kind of a slap in the face, the way she said it. Very maliciously. Yes, very maliciously. Well, the fact that you remember that vividly and your teacher's name oh, it 92 fa- years later affected my whole life. There are uh, other incidents later on in your life, in your military career, that we'll talk about in a minute. But those things lived with you all the way through your whole career. Exactly. Exactly. And maybe they may be stronger. I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. Maybe they gave me the perseverance that I had. I have no idea. Because you changed schools a lot and because of the family situation, you didn't have a whole lot of income, uh, you didn't study a whole lot. Exactly. And you said that you uh, kind of suffered from low self-esteem, didn't think much of yourself. It's very true. Was that a driving force later on then when you decided somehow to find a different course? Well, I don't know what, what drove me. I don't know what pushed me 
to want to become a pilot as badly as I did, but I know that I, I had a serious inferiority complex. I know that. I mean, I, I lived it, so I know I had it. And the day that I received my commission, the day that I received my wings, I instantly turned off the inferiority complex. From that moment on, I thought, I'm as good as anybody. Well, you're the commander. You have to be. Well, I wasn't the commander the day I got my wings. I had to go through a B-24 training to get my B-24 commander license. Mm -hmm. I didn't wash out of that. My co-pilot washed out of that, but I didn't. So I succeeded in everything in aviation that I wanted to do. Well, you were interested in aviation because your uncle had a my part uncle, of a plane? Well, I, I, years later, I really figured it out. There was a Montclair Theater on Grand and Harlem, and next to that theater was a garage, a small garage that my uncle owned. And on the side of the garage, he had this open cockpit plane with the wing off, but the cockpit was there, and I used to get in that plane and think, boy, this is really fun. I was probably five years old at the time, but I remember it. And then years later, I thought about it. I thought, I bet that had some influence oh, upon sure, sure. become a pilot. Yeah. Okay, so military begins. You graduate high school. Correct. Your Nine. grades weren't the greatest, but that's okay. You graduated. I, I graduated in the bottom two-thirds. I was right at one-third of the class was Stupider than him. <laughs> <laughs> Stupider than, <laughs> than you. <laughs> than but I, I do know that by, during, the, during the war when I had to take an IQ test, and I remember I was so afraid of washing out that nothing stopped me from anything. And I was running a temperature of about 101, and I took the IQ test anyway, and I still got 132. So I know that I had the intellect but I didn't know that. I didn't have the education. You enlisted. I enlisted, and yes. what were the circumstances? Well, as perseverance were the circumstances. I was in college. I had a year and a half of college when I dropped out. At that time, I was going to Wright Junior College. And because the war was on, all of my grades from high school went up one level in college. And I was taking advanced mathematics, calculus, and every hard course that I took, I got better grades in college than in high school because I had this determination to pick up a little knowledge because I wanted to get into cadets. The cadets being the per- Army, Air Force? Yeah. That's a path to becoming a pilot. So Correct. You, when you entered so, military, yes. you knew you wanted to be a pilot. Exactly. I went to the, the cadet testing on Franklin Street in Chicago. And, you know, I'm 99 years old, and I remember these crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. That's yeah. a very good thing. Yeah. Anyway, on Franklin Street in Chicago, there was a place where you took the test to become an aviation cadet. And I took it, and guess what? I failed I took it again. Guess what? I failed it. I went back again the third time, and I passed. That was my perseverance that started there. I wanted this so badly, and I finally enlisted after getting qualified as a cadet. But I was not really a a cadet then. I was only pre-cadet because I had to go through a lot before I became a cadet. I can tell you about many things that I did that I could have flunked out, not getting in, but I persevered. 
I was lucky. <laughs> well, what were those things that you attempted and you feared that you were going to flunk out? Okay, well, going into basic training, as an example, I was in basic training, and a fella came up to me I never saw before in my life. He says, I want to fight with you. I didn't know him. I, didn't, I never saw him before. I says, look, he was just in basic training. He may ended up as a cook, a baker, or a candlestick maker, for all I know. Maybe he had no future in mind, but I know that if I were caught fighting, there was a good chance I'd get washed out right there. So I said, look, I'll put the gloves on with you, but I'm not going to fight you bare-fisted because that would be, I, I don't know what would happen, but I'll put the gloves on with you. Fortunately, I was pretty quick, and he never hit me in all the time that we were fighting. Not one time did he hit me. He finally got so tired of swinging that he stopped and walked away. (laughs) (laughs) Challenge taken with some conditions, meaning the boxing gloves. Yeah. Lessons learned, right? Right. But the point is, I was afraid I'd get washed out for fighting. So I, I was very, very aware of the things that could happen to wash me out, and I did not want to get washed out. As another example, when I finally got to be in the cadets, I had gone through without getting any gigs. Gigs are marks against you. If you got seven gigs, you'd have to walk an hour with a rifle and like guard duty type of thing. And I never had any, and I thought, you know, this is dangerous. Maybe I should get a gig, and then... They'll say, hey, this guy is not a, you know, not a wimp. So one day we made up our bunks and we came back and there was a brush on my bunk, a leather-backed brush with a zipper to hold a comb. Somebody had put it there and I got gigs. And I thought, well, I've got about three gigs for that or whatever it is. And I needed seven, so I got seven. So I was able to walk one hour of guard duty before going out on Saturday afternoon, Saturday morning, uh, to go into town. So I, I planned that because I felt maybe that would help. But it didn't endanger your status. No, no, no. You could get a gig. That was no. You could do the guard duty. That was not. That would not endanger you. But I thought maybe it would be important for the people that make the decisions to look at that and say, "Hey, this guy's all right. He, you know, he, he did this and he." Paid the penalty. You made your way through all your requirements? Well, then there's also another thing that you had to do. You had to take a psychomotor test. You had to take a psychological test. You had to take an intelligence test. Those were prerequisites before you could become a cadet. So you passed all those requirements? Correct. First, I went to basic training. I went through basic training first. Then I went to Stillwater, Oklahoma, And from Stillwater, Oklahoma, I went to primary training. When I went to primary training, I became a cadet. What was that like for you? Well, going back, I went to San Antonio, Texas for aviation pre-flight. That was kind of interesting, too, because it was all on aviation and theory and things of that nature. And it was also training for the 45 and... Uh, I remember because when I was in high school, I went to the local park district and I made an archery set with 
Port Oxford cedar shafts for the arrows with U a bow, a real, a real bow and arrow. Same type of equipment that you'd buy in a store. And I was about 10th in archery in Chicago for my age. When we got to cadets, when we had to fire the 445, part of our training, there were 6,000 cadets. 6,000 cadets. And of the 6,000 cadets, there were six cadets that got an expert with a 45. And I was one of them. And had you ever shot? Never shot a forty-five. You had never shot a forty-five. Never shot a forty-five. Never held a forty-five until the day before, when this uh, sergeant gave us dry shooting, showing us how to do it. And Howard becomes an expert. Yeah. (laughs) And that's due to your archery. To the archery. Yeah. When I stop and think about these things, I have to be proud of them. Oh, of course. It, it brings tears to my eyes. There are these little moments along the way when your life and your achievements are reaffirmed because you're accomplishing something and you think that you don't measure up, but then all of a sudden you're one of six in 6,000 who's an expert. Yes. It's a reminder to you that I might not be as bad as I think I am. That was a reminder, but, you know, I wasn't thinking like that. I was thinking that I'm lucky to be here. I hope I can get through. I did everything possible to get through. All through this process, you have this constant fear of washing out. Oh. Inferior, inferiority complex. Right. But you get your wings and you make it. And what was your reaction when you got your wings? Like the impossible happened. There are other things that happened along the way where I persevered. In basic flight training, we moved from Fort Worth, Texas, Hicksfield, to Brady, Texas. And in Brady, Texas, the first day, I had another friend in another barracks that was just getting ready because we we were unpacking. We just got there. And I went to visit him. And as I opened the door, I heard a tension. And I didn't open the door any wider. And I looked and I saw... There was a captain, and he was reading the riot act to all the cadets in there because they didn't call attention. He had to call attention when he walked in. And I thought, oh, but I better get back in my barracks. So I shut the door quietly and went back to the barracks. And I was three-quarters of the way down to my bunk where I was ready to put everything away. And when he opened the door, I yelled, attention, and everybody pop too. Phew, I thought, well, that's over with, except that he walked up to me and he said, cadet, have you ever been a cadet officer? I said, no, sir. He said, well, you are now. I said, no, sir. (laughs) I said, no, sir. The worst thing I wanted to do is become an officer and be noticed. I wanted to slip through the cracks unnoticed, and he made me the squadron commander and I had to call everybody out 
to, to every meeting with formation to go to class, formation to go flying, formation to go to lunch, formation to go to dinner. Because you said Dan Hutton. <laughs> so that frightened me so much when he made me that that cadet officer. But I could have washed out, but I didn't. And I, I made it. I got one more. Do you want to hear that one? Fire away. All right. We're flying across country, and it was a, vi- a visual flight rules. You use a chart, and you're flying along, and all of a sudden I see a town, and I'm looking at my chart. The town's not there. Now, if I get lost, I'm washed out. It's a warm day, but I'm really perspiring because I can't find this town, and I'm circling the water tower, and I see the name, and I don't see the town. Well, I opened up the chart a little bit, and it was on the crease. It was on the other side of the chart, and I found out where I was, and I found my way back. So that was another time I could have washed out. I didn't. Perseverance. Perseverance. Perseverance, Howard. Oh, you were dancing on the edge on a number of occasions, A lot of occasions I failed, and I persevered. Which is the lesson here. Perseverance pays off. Yeah. Just keep trying. Don't give up. That's, that's it. How does the command route take place for the B-24? How does that begin? I'm sent to Pueblo, Colorado. And in Pueblo, Colorado, I take B-24 training. Now, there's no instance in B-24 training that I could have washed out because I, at that time I really I had my wings and I was not that concerned any longer. I did well in B-24 training and I graduated as a B-24 commander. And did you know where you were going to go because the war is going on? No, right? absolutely no, no clue of where I was going. I felt that I was going to Europe. I didn't know, I didn't think I was going to the South Pacific. That was the furthest thing because the, the fighting was so violent going on in, in Europe. I but just, you, so your presumption is you're, you're going to be bound for Europe. Yes. But then an event happens when you're with your future co-pilot. You are asked a question and the co-pilot raises your hand. How did that come about? Well, I lived off the base and I came into the base in the morning and my uh, co-pilot says, we want to go on this photo mission. I says, I'm not volunteering for a photo mission. I'm not even going to think about it, no. The squadron commander comes in, and we all pop to attention. And he says, at ease, we sat down. And he says, no, who wants to go on this photo mission? And my arm went up. My co-pilot raised my hand. And he took the squadron commander took my name, and I became one of the crews that went to Oklahoma City to learn to be a photo recon pilot and not go to Europe that next week. Were you not thrilled with that? At the time, I had no idea what was going on. It was just, I didn't know what I was in for. He volunteered my crew by his moving my arm. Now, that, that made me one of the lurkiest persons in the world right there because instead of going to Europe where the attrition rate was 50% of the crews didn't make it. 50%. The highest loss of lives in the armed services, they were the bomber pilots. 
And their crews. And their crews. As I say, I'm a very lucky guy. So you have command of a crew, B-24, and you go on photo reconnaissance missions. Tell me briefly, what, what was a photo reconnaissance mission? What was that about? All right, well, can I also tell you a story about before that? Yeah, let me back up. You have a crew. Yes. I think you get wind that they're not entirely pleased with you. Exactly, because I was Jewish. Because you're Jewish. Right. And they wanted the co-pilot to become the pilot and me to become something else, I don't know what. And the squadron commander said, no, you can break the crew up if you want, but you're not changing the pilot command, command pilot to co-pilot. Two of the crew members were related. They were brother-in-laws or something, and they wanted to stay together, so they agreed to stay with me. But they didn't want you, not because of your ability as a pilot. They didn't know my ability. They, I hadn't even flown with them yet. And it's because you're Jewish? Yeah. They, did I anybody had, say that to your face? Yes. How did you react to that? I didn't react. I did. I, I was not. I was. I was not an angry person. I, I was not angry. I was just just appalled by the, by the by the thought because they said that I would be take the last drop of water and I would be a coward in case of an emergency. That was their belief. That was their belief. And that was stated to you. Yes. That you you would be a coward. Yes. Yes. Now, ordinarily, I think somebody could have reacted violently to that, that you're being called a coward. Well, I had a 10-man crew. They were standing there, and I said, you know, I had nothing to do with it. They, they were turned down, and that was it. For, for a change. They yeah. were turned down for a change. There was no so, change. So they're with you, and then you prove yourself to them in a flight yes. that lasts. You're in the cockpit. You're flying a plane for 17 o- hours. Over 17 hours at the controls, no autopilot, no no co-pilot. Now, this is stateside. This right? is stateside. And and you're, you're in a nasty, nasty storm. Well, we got hit by lightning, lost our navigation equipment. We were about an hour and a half out from Oklahoma City, and I saw a flash of lightning, and I said to my co-pilot, Smitty, did you see that lightning? He says, oh, that's just heat lightning. Well, I turned to my radio operator, and I said, check the weather at Oklahoma City. About 10 seconds later, I got struck by lightning, and I lose all navigation equipment. What would you do? I uh, tried to find the tops of the uh, storm. I couldn't top it. I went up to about 15,000 feet. It was useless. It was still raining and lightning. And then I went down to what I thought was a safe altitude. I couldn't see land. I saw one spot that was a triangle, which could have been an airport, but I didn't know if the triangle was as big as my living room or it was as big as my house or if it was an airfield. There was no beacon or anything. My co-pilot said, land, land. But I didn't know how high I was, so I couldn't land. You're flying blind. Oh, absolutely flying blind. So finally I climb up to 8,000 feet again. I said, let me look at the chart. I wanted to see what the safe altitude was that would show on the chart. So I said to my co-pilot, take over. So I looked at the chart, but peripheral vision saw all the dials spinning. We were in a death spiral, which gives you about 30 seconds of life. So I took the controls, I said, I have it, and I took it up to 8,000 feet again. I said, look, just hold it on this heading and hold the altitude. And I took the chart and looked again, and all of a sudden the dials were spinning again. 
So I took over again. This is your co-pilot. A co-pilot. I took over. and So he's messing up. He's messing up twice. He could have killed us. And he was the one that was... That they wanted to they, be the captain. They wanted him to be the captain. And he was the one that they were, they were accusing me of being a coward. So about an hour later, after flying around, my engineer came up and says, what should I do about the fuel? So that the first engine dies. I said, no, keep all four engines running. Pilot to crew. When the first engine goes, that's the signs to bail out. The first thing I see after saying that is my co-pilot putting on his parachute, getting out of the seat, going down into the bomb bay, waiting for the engine to fail, which didn't fail ever. But he was waiting for that to happen. And I was the coward. So something was wrong. Something was amiss. <laughs> How'd you get out of the mess? Finally, flying south, I finally broke into some clear air, and I could see the flight line ahead of us. And I just was talking to Majors Air Force Base, and I asked them if they had lights on. They said, we're flashing lights on now. I said, I don't see them. So they, probably, they said, oh, you're probably at uh, Sulphur Springs, Texas in front of you, which was an auxiliary dirt field. So I went for that field, and I landed, and my co-pilot was brought up into the seat to go through the pre-landing checklist with me. When the wheels touched the ground, he unbuckled his seatbelt and started kissing this Jewish guy. I'm telling you the absolute truth. What was your reaction? I pushed him away. I didn't think of myself as a hero till I got into my 80s or 90s, and I thought about what I did there. It's, it was instinct at work. It was instinct and perseverance, and it was just... You saved your crew. Oh, yeah, saved 10 people. As a consequence of that, then their ill will toward this Jewish pilot dissipated, didn't well, it? Did I think so, because... I became very friendly with the engineer and his wife, comfortable with another fellow on the crew that came and lived with me for a while and traveled with me to Oshkosh, who wrote me beautiful letters of thanks and said that the problem with the crew was anti-Semitism, and I have that in writing. It was just a beautiful thing. We became real, real good friends. Look at all that wasted distrust yeah. way back at the beginning, though. Yeah, it was really terrible. And, you know, I felt badly. When I first went to Texas and I saw the uh, water fountains for blacks and, for, and water fountains for whites and washroom for the black, I thought, what the hell's going on here? I couldn't believe it. It was beyond me. And here I was being frowned upon because of how I was born. My m mother and father were both born in Chicago, and I was born in Chicago. So, I mean, what made me so terrible? I don't know. I didn't understand this. Do you understand it today? No, no, I don't understand. I don't understand the hatred that there is today. I don't. I really can't understand it. I've been friends with everybody. Mm -hmm. I try to be anyway. If they don't like me, that's their responsibility, not mine. I try to be a good human being. When you were flying in the Pacific doing the photo recon missions, yes. where were you? I went to New Guinea for a month. That month, I lived on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches from the Salvation Army, I think it was, because the food was so terrible, you couldn't cut the food. They had chicken there that must have been embalmed, because... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Even with our sharp knives, which we had weapons that were sharp, I couldn't cut the chicken. So I lived for that month. I lived on peanut butter and jelly. Was this military food? Yeah, this was no. The military food was terrible in New Guinea. In New Guinea, was unbelievably bad. When you're doing a photo recon mission, what are you what are you looking for? Okay, and where are you? are you over Japan? It's no, home? no, I never flew over Japan. My primary thing was mapping Borneo. Now Borneo was a critical point at that time because of a tremendous amount of oil, and we had uh, large cameras in the Bombay that were taking pictures, ten by ten pictures. They would take every sequentially, and they would all be taken to the Corps of Engineers. From that, they would make maps and charts. So that's what we did. Were you ever under any any fire? Any no, fire? I was not. If the war had gone on longer, if it wasn't for Paul Timmons and the B-29s and dropping the atomic bomb, I think we would have been part of the invasion of Japan. As I say, I, I, I'm, I just cannot believe... Looking back over the years, how lucky I have been. In everything you've learned during your life, the word that keeps coming forward is perseverance. You definitely, f- you definitely. F- you fail on a number of occasions, and you learn from failure. Right. And I'm wondering where that drive comes from. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's ingrained from your parents or if it's just something that everybody gets on their own it's it's an unknown to me i can't answer that question but whatever the circumstances you in your life wanted to prove yourself to yourself and to others by hitting certain marks at an early age you want to be a pilot and you became one you know paul when i think about it it brings tears to my eyes can't help it well, you look back on all those years, and you did a lot of things. Oh, you yes. You did a lot of things. Oh, yes. I mean, I was a flight instructor for 75 years. Taught a lot of people how to fly. So I know that I had the ability. I know that I never was frightened in an airplane. About a decade ago when you had your honor flight trip. One of my friends said, Howard, you ought to go on this honor flight for Washington for Chicago. And I said, no, I've been to Washington. I want to do this. He said, no, you want to do this. You want to do this. So he talked me into it. And I got a call from somebody asking me if I wanted to go. It was one of the most amazing day, one day that I can remember. The entertainment was, was incredible. The treatment was wonderful. This lady, Karen Collins, said to me, I remember her name 12 years ago. I remember Karen's, Collins' name. And she said to me, uh, Howard, uh, do we need a wheelchair? I said, do you mean I have to wheel you all around Washington? Because I was in good shape at, uh, 12 years ago. I could have wheeled her around Washington. So that started the, the day, but it was just incredible. But when they called for mail call, now mail to me was very important. 
When they called for mail call and I got this envelope with about 50 letters in it, I opened it up and I started crying. I, put, I, I, I cheer up now. It was just impossible. So that's, that's the way it was. It was just a, an incredible thing. And then when you get off the plane, it, it was another exciting adventure. I guess I'm a little sensitive. It's all right. You can be sensitive. It was a memorable experience in many, many Unquestionably. ways. Unquestionably. Yeah. And then my whole family was there. Yeah. yeah. And that is so meaningful, isn't it? Howard, this has been a pleasure. Just a pleasure. I imagine you you enjoy every one of these visits. Oh, I love them. I love them. They're just great. Everybody's got a story, and every story is compelling in its own way. I'm the luckiest man you'll ever meet. Beautiful. Thanks for talking with me. And thank you for coming out, Paul. Okay. Thank you. A postscript. Howard was actively flying for three quarters of a century. He is a member of the Illinois Aviation Hall of Fame. At 99, he's still able to drive, even at night. He's mobile, he travels, he perseveres. And when he says he's a lucky man, maybe a good bit of that luck came from his own will to succeed. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. And if you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.